you don't need to do anything at all. That God will just move on you in some way and you'll be saved. God will take care of you. You don't have to do anything. Some say you just have to have faith. Some uh, would say you have to believe and be baptized. A lot of confusion. One of the more common ways that we're hearing today about how we need, what we need to do to be saved is to say a prayer. To say a prayer. And that prayer is often referred to as the sinner's prayer. Tonight, I want to examine that idea, that common idea, that we just need to say a prayer in order to be saved and compare it with what the Scriptures teach. As Joseph just read for us, everything that we do has to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Doing something in Jesus' name means that we're going to have authority from Jesus for what we do. And that authority has to come from God's Word. It's not going to come from what we think. It's not going to come from what some respected preacher says, but it has to come from God's Word. The problem is that when false doctrines are repeated long enough and loud enough, people begin to accept them as truth without comparing what they're hearing with what the Scriptures teach. That's dangerous for everyone. It's dangerous for you and for me. If we hear something long enough, we may be tempted to believe it. We need to be like those in Berea in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. These are more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. These people in Berea were hungry for the truth of the gospel. They wanted to hear it. They received it with all readiness. But just because they had received it didn't mean that they accepted it until they compared it with what the Scriptures taught. And only when it aligned and harmonized with what the Scriptures taught, then would they accept it. And that needs to be what our principle and our approach to this is as well. What do the Scriptures teach? We are in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we looked at this morning. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It's very important that we believe only what the Scriptures teach. And so the question for us tonight is, what about the sinner's prayer? Where do we read about the sinner's prayer in the Bible, if it's in there? And what do we know about the sinner's prayer? Well, first off, we need to look at the history of the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is a relatively new doctrine. Within the last 500 years, did this concept even come to mind of the sinner's prayer? The church will remind, remind, you, remind, uh, remind you was create, was formed over 2,000 years ago, approximately 2,000 years ago. And so a 500-year-old invention is relatively new in church history. One of the earliest teachings that we have in history of a sinner's prayer or something similar to it was by a man named John Webb. And he formulated his doctrine based upon the teachings of Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, beginning verse 14, we have the letter to the church of the Laodiceans. In Revelation chapter 3, beginning of verse 14, Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me gold refined in the fire, 
that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with the eye with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. There and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. John Webb and others will look at this last phrase. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. John Webb said this. Here is a promise of union to Christ. In these words, I will come into him. That is, if any sinner will but hear my voice and open the door and receive me by faith, I will come into his soul and unite him to me and make him a living member of that, my mystical body of which I am the head. John Webb said this opening of the door is basically a prayer to, or an acceptance of Jesus. Let him into your heart and he'll come in. All you got to do is open the door. The problem with this is that Revelation chapter 3 was written to Christians, not to non-Christians. It was written to Christians. It wasn't telling non-Christians how to be saved. But John Webb began, it appears, this idea of a prayer or asking Jesus into your heart. Charles Finney began using uh, what was known as the ancient seat, ancient seat in 1835, which again was thought to lead to this idea of a sinner's prayer. Charles Finney's ancient seat was uh, something that he said was a substitute for baptism. Notice what he said about this. They would use this seat where you would sit in order to be saved. Look at this. The church has always felt it necessary to have something of this kind to answer this very purpose. In the days of the apostles, baptism answered this purpose. The gospel was preached to the people, and then all those who were willing to be on the side of Christ were called out to be baptized. It held the place of the anxious, um, it held the place that the anxious seat does now as a public manifestation of their determination to be Christians. Charles Finney admitted that in the Bible they were using baptism, but now he was going to change that to this anxious seat. And then getting closer to history, we have what was then formulated into a more formal version of the sinner's prayer that we're familiar with today. In the early 1900s, Billy Sunday was a well-known baseball player who had become a Christian, uh, and he started holding crusades. And he would preach a very fiery sermon. And at the end of that sermon, he would offer some type of invitation for people to become Christians. Many times that included a prayer or coming down to the aisle to see Billy Sunday but it was said that you could become a Christian by, being a, by saying a prayer. And then we get to, a little bit later in time, to a very, very well-known preacher by the name of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham uh, was converted at one of Billy Sunday's crusades in 1936. And by the early 1940s, Graham was becoming a crusader himself. And he would use this idea of a prayer uh, and he devised uh, from uh, uh, that, this idea that you would say a sinner's prayer. Billy Bright then formalized this in the 1950s. 1950s now, about 70 years ago, Billy Bright formed a sinner's prayer that looks much like a sinner's prayer that we would read today. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. 
Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. And so now you have a formalized version of a prayer that you can say in order to be saved. And as I said, this has been recited so many times, people would almost, I think, believe that they could turn to the Bible somewhere and read this prayer verbatim, or at least read some reference to this prayer. The question we have to ask, though, is this taught in the Bible? Can we find it in the Bible? It's amazing when we look at the Bible, we see no reference to that. This was man's devising. It's not part of God's uh, design. Um, the history is clear on how this about, and yet people are accepting this at one after the other. Some, when you ask about the sinner's prayer, will look at various verses to try and point out that, well, the idea of a sinner's prayer is mentioned in the Bible. One of those places would be Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Acts chapter 2, verse 21 is a place where some would go to to say, see, here is a reference to a sinner's prayer. In Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 21, and it shall come to pass, Peter says, on, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost says you need to call on the Lord to be saved. And so some would say, see here, this is where we see a sinner's prayer. They were told on the day of Pentecost they need to say the sinner's prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my heart, take control of the throne of my life, make me the person you want me to be, and I accept your salvation and however the sinner's prayer may be worded today. This simply is not the case, though. In Acts chapter 2, drop down to verse 37, and we'll see what calling on the name of the Lord involved. In chapter 2 of Acts uh, verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to, all, and to your children and to all who are far off, as many of the, as our Lord, the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The promise was you could be saved. The promise in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 40, looks an awful lot like what we looked at in Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Whoever promises to you, the Lord will be saved. And if we will repent and be baptized for the mission of sins, the promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are far off, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever is baptized for their mission of sins. We're going to talk about what this idea of calling on the name of the Lord means in a minute. But it's clear here that calling on the name of the Lord is connected with repentance and baptism. Another place this idea of calling on the name of the Lord is mentioned is that in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, as Paul is recounting what happened to him when he was saved. And what Ananias told him in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Ananias said to Saul, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord. They would say, see there, there's the sinner's prayer. Wait a minute. How did Saul get his sins washed away? By being baptized, not by saying a prayer. Why, calling on the name of the Lord is again connected with obedience. Calling on the name of the Lord, as we mentioned earlier in our lesson tonight, refers to doing things by Jesus' authority. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When I call in the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm giving uh, Jesus control of my actions. I'm yielding to his will. I'm submitting to his authority. Calling on the name of the Lord means submitting to in obedience to the Lord. In, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There were people who were saying they were doing things in Jesus' name, but they weren't submitting to his authority. They were practicing lawlessness. They were doing what they wanted to do calling on the name of the Lord, doing things in Jesus' name, and saying, Lord, Lord, and doing things in His name means we have to do things according to His will. Otherwise, we're practicing lawlessness. Scriptures teach us that calling on the name of the Lord implies that we're going to submit, we're going to obey, we're going to do what Jesus said to do. And nowhere in the Bible... Do we see sinners being told to say a prayer in order to be saved? You can look throughout your scriptures. You will not find sinners being told, say a prayer in order to be saved. And yet it is recited so often and people accept it so freely. It's frightening. Instead, we need to look at what the scriptures teach. What were people told to do to be saved in the Bible? This is very important. Because I want to know what God said to do. I don't care what Billy Graham said to do. Or Billy Sunday. Or, Jane, or Mr. Webb. Or anyone else. I want to know what Jesus said to do. What God says to do in his word. And so let's look at the conversions that are listed. Some of the conversions listed in the book of Acts. And let's see what they say about what we need to be, do to be saved. Let's look in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2. And this is a lengthy reading, but I think it's important for us to understand the context, understand the sermon, so we can understand what people were told to do on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 14. In Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. 
you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to set on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the flesh, Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, If you will ask Jesus into your heart and say a prayer, no. He said, Men and brethren, uh, he said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for, and for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, Peter missed a great opportunity. If what we need to do in order to be saved is say a prayer, he missed a great opportunity because he was asked the question. And yet they, he told them what they needed to do was be baptized. No prayer mentioned here. No prayer mentioned here. Look at Acts chapter 8. Look at Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 5. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5, Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. And he preaches the gospel there and notice the reaction and the response of those who heard the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 5. Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city, but there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he was preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of, the Lord, of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, continued with Philip, and he was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Simon had been pulling the wool over these people's eyes. They, he had them convinced that he was someone great. And yet when his miracles were put next to real miracles, the difference was evident. And the people who saw those miracles and then listened to Philip. What were the purpose of miracles again? To confirm the word. When they saw Philip's miracles, they knew he had to be speaking from God. And when they heard what he was saying, they believed it. And what did they do? They were baptized. And Simon himself knew this is the real deal. He knew that these were real miracles. And he believed. And he was baptized. They weren't told to say a prayer. They were told what they needed to do, and that included baptism. Drop down in chapter 8 and look at the eunuch in Acts chapter 8, verse 35. In Acts chapter 8, verse 35. 
Philip later is told he needs to go and uh, catch up with this eunuch and preach the gospel to him after he leaves Samaria. And he's in verse uh, 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Now, just think about this for a minute. The eunuch is on a long journey back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, riding in his chariot. And he is told about Jesus. And when he's told about Jesus, evidently that included baptism because he asked the question, what, what, what hinders me from being baptized? He had been told about baptism. When he's told about Jesus, he's been told about baptism. And he stops the chariot on the road while he's traveling, gets out of the chariot, gets into the water and gets wet. Why? If all you need to do is say a prayer, Philip could have saved him a lot of trouble and he didn't have to delay his journey at all. And yet there was something more that he needed to do. He needed to be baptized. Prayer is not mentioned here anywhere in the conversion of the eunuch. We've looked at Saul of Tarsus already, but look with me in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, notice the account of Saul's conversion. Let's begin reading in verse 1, actually, because we need to get the context here, because we do see some prayer in this context. Disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I believe when he said, who are you, Lord, that was just a term of respect. He didn't know who he's talking to. And then the Lord said, verse 5, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord. I think this is a, a, a cry of faith here. Lord, um, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, where he, ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him into, by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house for Judas, of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For you'll show many, uh, you'll show him, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way. And entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me, that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately it fell from his eyes something like scales, 
And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Why was he baptized? He had been praying. Prayer wasn't what it took. Combine this account in Acts chapter 9 with what we read about in Acts chapter 20. In verse 9, Acts chapter 22, as Saul is recounting what happened, begin reading with me in verse 9. In Acts chapter 22, verse 9. In Acts chapter 22, verse 9, we read, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What do, shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be a witness, his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Ananias, or Saul had been calling on the name, or had been praying, I'm sorry, He'd been praying, and yet he still had sins that needed to be washed away. He wasn't saved as a result of his praying. He needed to be baptized in order to be saved. Back up in Acts to chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, you understand that we have the account here of the first Gentile convert, Cornelius. Cornelius. Now, there were a lot of special things involved with Cornelius' conversion. A vision, Peter coming to him. And speaking to him what the Holy Spirit wanted to deliver to Cornelius. And yet Cornelius still had a response that he had to make, and it did not include prayer. Cornelius had been praying, you remember? And yet he was not saved as a result of his prayer. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, let's actually begin reading earlier in Acts chapter 10 before we get to verse 34. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 10, Beginning with, with, verse, uh, with verse 1. Now, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming into him and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. You're saved. No. Send to Joppa, men to Joppa, and send for Peter, whose surname is uh, Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Now, drop down to verse 34. Drop down to verse 34, and here we have Peter's sermon. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of uh, the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. How God raised him up, or him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, 
not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before, commanded us to preach to, to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay a few days. Cornelius was praying. God heard his prayers, but he wasn't saved. He needed to be baptized. And then a couple more examples in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we see the conversion of Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, beginning of verse 12. Acts 16, verse 12. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who were there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house. So she persuaded us. Lydia was baptized to be saved. She wasn't asked to say a prayer. And then finally, let's look at the jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. Paul is subsequently put in jail. And you remember there was an earthquake and the prisoners were released and the jailer is about to kill himself because he knows that if a jailer lets his prisoners out, he's dead. And so he's just going to do the job himself. And Paul tells him, you don't have to do that because we're all here. And so he takes him out of the prison, takes him to his house. And after Paul explains to him the gospel message, notice verse 30 of Acts chapter 16. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. The jailer is told that he needs to believe. That belief is not just a mere mental assertion of some fact. That belief included being obedient to what was being told. And he took him that very hour of the night and he was baptized. Shows us that what is required is not just a prayer. He risked his job, he risked his life to take those men to be baptized because of how important it is. What does the Bible say men did in order to be saved? There's no prayer mentioned told over and over again people needed to be baptized in order to be saved. And that's just not some type of wild conclusion that we're making. That harmonizes with so many other passages that tell us we have to be baptized in order to be saved. Passages like Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, beginning of verse 15. In Mark chapter 16, beginning of verse 15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You want to be saved? What did Jesus say you need to do? You need to be baptized. What do we read about in 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism saves us. Baptism is required in order to be saved. We need to be baptized over and over again. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How do we get into Christ? How do we get into his body in order to be saved? Jesus is the Savior of the body. How do I get into that body? By being baptized. Over and over again. I find verses that tell me I've got to be baptized in order to be saved. I find no verses that tell me what Billy Graham said I need to do in order to be saved. That is a man-made doctrine that people have accepted on face value, maybe because of who said it or how often they've heard it or who are, how many people are believing it, whatever it may be. The only reason we should accept something is because of what we read right here. And we need to take that as a warning. All of us need to be on guard to make sure that everything we believe can be found. Even if we, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 again says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The question for us tonight is, are we believing only what the Scriptures teach? And have we submitted to what the Scriptures teach about being saved? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Can we help you this evening? If there's anything we can do to help you spiritually, will you let us know while we stand and sing?